If you've got a Bible, turn to it to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2. So Mark's right there behind Matthew, right at the beginning of the New Testament. Um, Mark chapter 2. Now, we're reading through Matthew this semester, and this, this passage is also in Matthew. It's also in Luke. It's in Matthew 9. It's in Luke chapter 5. But Mark gives us a really full account of everything that happens, so we're going to use Mark chapter 2. And that's what we'll do throughout the semester is we'll often go through accounts that are in multiple Gospels and we'll just choose one and go from there and kind of add in things as we need to. So um, we're in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let me read it for us. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down their bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word in Mark chapter one or chapter two, verses one through twelve. Lord, would you help us to see you more clearly through your word and also love you more dearly? Amen. What's the most crowded space you've ever been in? I want you to think about that. Don't answer, but think about what is the most crowded space you've ever been in? It's kind of an odd question because we haven't been in crowds in a long time, right? Probably it's hard to think about the last crowd you've, you've ever been in. Um, but I was, I was interested. I was looking up, you know, big crowds and, and how many people in a, in a certain space. And I found that there was a, a fad in 1959 that everybody was doing. And it was called phone booth stuffing. Okay. I know some of you, I hope you know, most of you know what a phone booth is. If not, it's a big metal box that has a phone in it. This is the age before cell phones right? And so in 1959, this craze basically swept the world of like, let's see how many people we can fit into one phone booth. So it was started in Durban, South Africa, where they fit 25 people into a single phone booth. And then some people in St. Mary's College in California hold the North American record because in 1959, they fit 22 people into a phone book or a phone booth. And there's a great picture in Life magazine, this black and white photo of all these guys crammed into the phone booth. And it's pretty wild. But imagine you're walking by in the age before cell phones and you have to make a phone call. You have to make a phone call and there's 22 people crammed into this phone booth. It's impossible, right? It's not going to happen. Now, I doubt that that's ever happened to anyone, anybody in the history of the world, that they'd have to make a phone call and there's 22 people in the phone booth. But we often actually do feel crowded in our lives, right? We feel crowded by the options that we have, the apps we can use the sheer amount of information that's out there for us, right? And it's often worse when we have a deep need. All those options just get in the way, right? Just like 22 people stuffed inside a phone booth. 
And so we see here actually in Mark chapter 2 that there's a paralyzed man. That means he's lame. He can't walk, right? And he just wants to get to Jesus. But there's a crowd of people in the way. And so the message of the passage is simple. And the message is this, is that we must bring one another to Jesus because only he can heal. We must bring one another to Jesus because only he can heal. And that's the theme of our semester. This semester is Jesus heals. So first, we have to bring one another to Jesus. We must bring one another to Jesus. And we see that in the first few verses. So the, con- the, the, the context is set, right? The stage is set in the opening few verses. Jesus returned to Capernaum, verse 1, and it was reported that he was in a certain house. Verse 2, there were many gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So Jesus is teaching, and a crowd forms, right? And this crowd is so much that you can't even get in through the door. Even behind the door, people are standing because they're craning, right? They're looking in, trying to see, can I see anything about Jesus? Can I even hear his voice? It is a huge, huge crowd. And that's a problem, but the even bigger problem we see in verse 3, and that's this. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So we have this guy who's paralyzed, right? We know his legs don't work, maybe his arms, we don't know exactly, but we know for sure his legs don't work. He's paralyzed. He has his bed with him, or his mat, some translations say, which is this little thing he can roll out and lay on top of. That way he doesn't have to lay on the ground. But this man wants to see Jesus. He wants to hear Jesus' teaching, and he knows that Jesus has healed other people, so he's thinking, maybe I can get healed as well. Well, what do his friends do, right? They see the crowd, and I'm sure a lot of you know this story. So verse 4, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So the four friends take him, and they go up on the roof. Now, first of all, the roof back then didn't look like our typical house roof, because if you think of a roof of a house, it's pretty sloped, right? But back then, the their roof was even. It was flat. And you had a little parapet. That way people could stand up there. If it was too hot, people would sleep up there, right? And so they go up on the roof, and they start digging. They're digging through kind of this baked clay tile, right? There's dirt. So if you can imagine this, Jesus is in the house teaching, and you hear the scratching on the roof. You start to see dust fall, dirt fall. This hole open eventually gets wider, and this man gets lowered down on his mat, right? And these are really good friends because they get him to Jesus. And Jesus even kind of, it kind of mentions that, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, right, the faith of the paralytic, but also including the faith of his friends, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus recognizes the sacrifice that these people have made. He recognizes what the friends have done. Have you ever had friends like this that have done something like this for you? I, I've, not, I've never had anything near like that. Um, I do remember, though, I had this experience in high school. And when I was in high school, Facebook was the big thing. It had just come out you know, pretty recently. Everybody was on Facebook. Everybody was liking pages, making Facebook groups, all that sort of thing. So... I don't even remember how I found out, but somebody made a Facebook group that was called Noah Wiersma is Overrated. Okay, somebody just made the Facebook group, put it out there. And so it was like a secret group, so you could see it, but you had to, you know, get the, get the invite. Um, but I had a friend who saw that group and made a different group that was Noah Wiersma is not overrated, you're just jealous, Right? And this friend had my back. This friend was like, look, I see what they're doing. I'm going to do this, right? That friend was with me. That friend was for me. 
But more important than a Facebook group, right, are the people who actually take you to Jesus. If you're a believer, the people who have led you to Jesus, right, who have, who have gotten through the crowd, who have helped you to see Jesus, to see his life, his death, his resurrection for you. I think it's important sometimes to step back and say, who has brought you to Jesus? And to be thankful for them, to let them know, to thank your parents, to thank, you know, Sunday school teachers, volunteers, friends, whoever has brought you to Jesus, to thank them and say, hey, you didn't have to do this, but you love me enough to do it. You love me enough to press through the crowd and get me to Jesus. But just like those four men had to get through a crowd, had to go dig through the roof, right? The reality is there's always obstacles to Jesus. There's always something else to be done. There's always somewhere else to be, something else you could be doing, a world full of options, right? You all had to choose to get on the Zoom this afternoon. And it's not easy. It's not easy to meet in Zoom. If we had met outside, that still wouldn't be easy, especially on a day like today, right? It's not easy to spend a semester trying to be diligent and reading through the book of Matthew. They're not easy things to do. But we can bring one another to Jesus. We can help each other. We can commit to doing things together. And further, we also should commit to be people that bring others to Jesus, just like the four friends. But when we think about bringing people to Jesus, I want us to see two things about the friends. They're, they're gentle, but they're also truthful. And here's what I mean, right? Think about the four friends. They're carrying their friend to Jesus. They're probably not carrying him as fast as they can, not caring if he gets injured along the way, right? As long as he sees Jesus, Jesus can heal whatever. No, they're probably to be gentle. They're going to be caring. They're going to want what's best for him. And so they're gently carrying him to Jesus. But they're also caring for him truthfully and carrying him truthfully. Like they didn't stop at the crowd. They didn't look at the crowd and say, okay, well, we tried. We got him this far. No, they do what it takes to get him to Jesus. And so as we think about friends, people we love, people we know who we want to take to Jesus, we need to think about doing it gently, doing it truthfully, praying for them, having good conversations with them. So we've seen from this passage that we need to bring one another to Jesus. But the question is why? why? Why Jesus? And the rest of the passage makes it really, really clear. Because only Jesus can heal. Only Jesus can heal. So we left off in verse 5, right? Jesus says to the paralytic, the paralytic's been raised, you know, he's down in the, in the midst of the house. And Jesus says, when he sees the faith of the paralytic and the friends, he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we look at that, and we're used to Jesus talking about sins, but imagine you're that paralytic, right? You've come all this way, you have this condition, you're in front of Jesus. That's probably not what you expect. You probably expect him to heal you. You're like, Jesus, you have the power to heal me. Like, this is the big thing that's wrong with me, right? But here's the interesting thing. So, actually, uh, you know, you might be looking at it, and you might say, okay, is this is his sin the result, like, did he sin and that's why he's paralyzed? Like, what's Jesus getting at? And that's not necessarily what Jesus is saying. But rather what Jesus is saying is this, that all the evil we see and experience in the world is a result of sin. After Adam and Eve, we live in a broken world. And so things are sinful. There's brokenness, right? But each of us ourselves are sinful. Each of us are broken. Each of us, just like the paralytic, are paralyzed by our sin. In fact, the New Testament says that we're dead in our sin. And this is why Jesus forgives the sin of the paralytic, because it's the root of all of his problems. It's not just the root of all of his problems, but it's also the root of everybody else's problems in the room, right? Nobody else in that crowd is paralyzed. But Jesus realizes this is the more important thing, not just for this man, but for everybody else. 
This is why Jesus forgives his sins. But we see there the scribes, kind of the smart guys in the room, right? Their reaction in verse 6. They say, now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone, right? So they don't even react out loud. They think these things, right? And they're right, actually, about one thing. They're right that only God can forgive sins. Think about it this way, right? If, if Parker sins against Evan, for example, right? I'm just, there are two in front, people in front of me, right? If Parker sins against Evan, I can't say to Parker, I forgive you. That makes no sense, right? And even though Evan can forgive, all sins is not just an offense against a person. Actually, all sin is actually an act of rebellion against God himself who created and made the universe. And so they're right in that God can forgive sins. Only God can. But they're wrong about who Jesus is. You see, they don't think Jesus is God, and that's where they're wrong. So look at Jesus' response in verse 8. Now, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? So first of all, right, Jesus can read their hearts and minds. Clearly, he's no ordinary guy. The only reason we know what they were thinking is because Jesus basically says, here's what you're thinking, which is amazing, right? It's amazing. He knows their hearts and minds. He's not an ordinary man, clearly, right? And then in verse 9, he asks them a simple question. He says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, it's an odd question. I think if, if we're thinking about it, we might say, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, because if you say to somebody, hey, rise, get up and walk, they either are or aren't. And you can't really see sins being forgiven. But that's kind of not what, I don't, I don't think that's really what Jesus means here. He's saying both of these are impossible for any human being. It's impossible for any of us to go up to somebody else and say either your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your mat and walk if it's somebody who's paralyzed. Both of these things are impossible, right? But what if Jesus does the impossible? Let me put it this way. I think you all probably think I'm of sound mind and of sound body, right? You think I have good reasoning skills, hopefully, good logic. So what if I come up to you and say, hey, I can fly and I can run faster than the speed of sound. You're going to look at me like I'm crazy. You're going to be like, you can't do either one of those things, right? But let's say I start flying. You're going to rethink the fact of whether or not I can run faster than the speed of sound, right? Because I've done the impossible. I've done something you didn't think I could do. And that's Jesus' point here. He says, which is easier? Right? So verse 10, he says this, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turns. Like, you can imagine this scene happening. He's talking to these scribes, and he pivots, right? Turns, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so what happens? Well, when he rose, the, the paralytic rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All, all Jesus says is, rise, pick up your mat, and walk, and the paralytic does it, right? Jesus heals him. It's complete. It's immediate. What's amazing is that not only can he walk and move his muscle, not only can he move his legs, but he can actually get up and walk. If any of you have had a muscle injury, you know that you have to rebuild muscle, and it takes time, but the paralytic just goes from zero to 60, right? He was paralyzed, and he gets up and walks. It's amazing. It's a miracle, right? And so Jesus is saying, right, I can prove, I can heal the body, yes, but more, most importantly, I can heal the soul. I can forgive sins. And so the man, he, he rolls up his mat and he goes home. 
The passage in Luke that talks about this says that man goes home glorifying God. So the man, even as he goes home, we see him bringing other people to Jesus. Right? But the really important thing to see here is Jesus proving he can heal the body, but more importantly, he can heal the soul. He can forgive sins. And this is important because even though he healed this man, right, even though he healed him of paralysis, eventually those same legs that got up and walked would stop moving. One day that man would die, right? And the man's biggest problem is not his paralysis, it's actually his sin. So that's why Jesus goes to sin first. That's why he, he says, your sins are forgiven. And this healing is proof of who Jesus is, that he's God himself and what he came to do, which is to forgive sins. Because Jesus takes the death that we deserve for our sin, for our rebellion, he takes it upon himself and allows us to have forgiveness. He came to heal us. He came to heal all of us who believe in him through his death and his resurrection. And for those of us who are Christians, he's still working in us and through us through the Holy Spirit. All right, only Jesus can heal. No one else knows our hearts and minds like him. No one else gets to the root of our problems, right? And the thing is, our problems aren't going to go away with more friends or more followers, more success, more education, more money. Sometimes those are things we think, if I only had more of this, these things would go away. But th those aren't the problems, right? The root of it is sin. The root of it is that we're actually separated from God without hope except through what Jesus has done, who's reunited us to God himself, because he is God. But also, it doesn't matter the depth of your sin. It, do, it doesn't matter. There's still forgiveness for you. There's still forgiveness in Jesus. Just as we're going to see this semester, Jesus heals all sorts of things, all sorts of injuries, things that seem unhealable. He heals them. It's the same thing spiritually. No one is without hope. Jesus can save anyone. Right? Even people we know that seem like, okay, maybe we think I can never have forgiveness. Or maybe we have a friend who thinks I can never be forgiven. Right? But Jesus can do that. He can heal us. He can heal you. He can heal me. We must bring one another to Jesus because only Jesus can heal. Let me give you kind of a final illustration to, to see one, little, one last point in the story. So uh, my great-grandfather was affectionately referred to by all of us as great-grandpa B. And he loved two things. He loved a really good Granny Smith apple, and he loved playing golf. And so when he was a young man, there was a golf course right next to his house. And he decided he was going to plant an apple seed right after the ninth green. So he planted this apple seed. And then years later, when he was older, you know, when he was late in life, he would play that course. And when he walked by the ninth green, he'd pick an apple and eat it on his way. And he'd have a snack in the middle of his round, right? Well, what was he doing? When he planted that seed all those years ago, he was acting with the future in mind, right? His action was for the present, yes, but it was also for the future. And see, that's what Jesus does with this paralytic. That's why he forgives his sins. He's acting with the future in mind, even in the present. And see, that's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He's saying, this is the fundamental problem, and I am solving it. And so we need to bring one another to Jesus because only he can heal us. And that's the theme of our semester, Jesus heals. And so I pray together this semester that we will experience that through the healings of Jesus that we read and see that he healed then and he heals us even now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazingness of the story. That we have a story of Jesus healing somebody who is paralyzed, who makes them, makes them to walk again, and also forgives their sins. Lord, help us to bring one another to Jesus. Help us to bring those around us. Give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart for people that don't know you. And show us so that we can come closer and closer to you, to continue to grow, continue to come towards you this semester.
Amen.